0: Well, good evening. Welcome. Welcome to week five of the Alpha Course. At the end of this evening, we will be halfway through the class. So, and I know they're already crying about that in the front row. So, (laughs) so Ashley, don't worry. I can do it. Don't pay no attention to me. So anyway, welcome. We are so happy you're here. I know we got some first time folks here tonight. So I want to welcome you guys are here for the first time. Now, how many are five for five? Do we have any five for five? Okay, do not screw that up. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, commencement like you've never had. Like some of you have never graduated from anything. So don't screw this up. Come. All right. So, um, so anyway, tonight we are... Uh, just to tell you, if you've missed previous weeks, you can do a couple things. You can go to the Lakeview Christian Center YouTube channel and you can pick up the previous four weeks if you want to watch. Or at the end of the evening, we will have, um, when you go down the stairs or the elevator, um, we have got CDs of each of the previous weeks, including tonight. So if you'd like to have those, or you want to share them with somebody, please feel free to do that. So tonight we're in session six, how and why do or should I read the Bible? Next week, we're going to go back to session five, which is how and why do I pray? So just wanted to Touch the Bible portion first and then go next week into this very mysterious thing called prayer. So, anyway, now many years ago, if you'd have asked me about the Bible, well, in my meology, now if folks are here for the first time, they have the, what is meology? Just explain that to folks later tonight. But my meology didn't need the Bible. I didn't need the Bible. But uh, an importance of the Bible is kind of important if you're going to come to a knowledge of the God of the Bible. Um, and that, that that makes sense to me now, but it certainly didn't when I was out pursuing God in my own quid pro quo way. God, you do this and I'll do this. If you don't do this, then I'm not going to do that. I mean, I was making, as you know, as I've told you, deals with God. But I had no idea what a Bible even was until I was crossing the street at... Uh, LSU on the corner of Dalrymple and Highland Road, leaving the Deke house. I was sober. I was leaving the Deke house, going to a class, and a guy, man, handed me this little green Bible. And, um, and that was the first time I ever had knew what a Bible was, held a Bible in my hand to the best of my knowledge. And so, um, so I, I just, at that point in time, at 19 years of age, began to read the Bible, um, but if, before that, if you would have tested me, I would have failed miserably. But tonight, I thought I'd just kind of give you a, a Frank's Remedial Bible Quiz. So we're just going to do this. If you want to take the test, you can do that. Um, so Frank's Remedial Bible Quiz. Um, first question I was asked was, why should you read the Bible? And really, I had absolutely no idea because, one, I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe it has something to do with God. So maybe to get to know something about God. I, I really could not have answered that question maybe you couldn 't either, maybe you still can 't, but maybe tonight at the end of the evening, you will two is Christianity based on the Bible? Well, I, that, that made sense to me. Uh, the third question is Christianity based only on the Bible? That seemed a little narrow, so i 'm not quite sure that I would have given that an, a yes question, a yes answer. Uh, fourth question was what is jesus christ 's middle initial right now you have to say it with emotion, right. <laughs> Jesus H so i mean, you did know that was his middle issue not you I mean that's the one I got right okay uh, question five in what Bible book is God addressed as the man upstairs <laughs> not sure but I don't you hear that all the time I have to take it up with the man upstairs uh, number six what book reveals the location of the stairway to heaven I think that is the gospel according to Led Zeppelin, but I'm not sure. Um, number seven, what book reveals the location of the highway to hell? Must These are things, I'm, I think that's the gospel according to ACDC, is that that's right? Um, uh, th- here's a true-false, I love it. Is Noah's wife's name Joan of Arc? Make sense? I'm, true. I don't know what her name was. If anybody? I can't remember her name. Uh, number nine, name the four Gospels. Okay. St. John, St. Paul, St. George, and St. Ringo. That would probably be the four Gospels, to the best of my knowledge. Um, oh, let's continue on with this quiz. Write three Bible verses you knew. Like this, this was hard, but I, but I tried to get them. This was my first answer. Cleanliness is next to godliness. My mother assured me that was in the Bible. Um, Don't be so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good. You heard that one before? <laughs> it's just stupid. Um, my, my thought is that the more heavenly minded you are, if the Bible's true, the more earthly good you are, but... And then, of course, the one everyone knows, this is God helps those who help themselves. Hmm. Maybe true, maybe not true. Actually, it's just the opposite. Okay, so then if you screwed up, then I I got a bonus question. I knew I got this one right. Okay, bonus question. What Bible verse puts the most fear of God in you? He sees you when you're sleeping. (laughs) He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. I don't know if I got the last line right, but this is how I wrote it. So be good so you don't bake. So anyway, Frank's remedial Bible quiz. (laughs) So so why why don't we know that the Bible says just the opposite of God helps those who help themselves? Why don't we know that? Because we don't know what is in the Bible. Uh, we don't know that the Bible says some things that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that there is no one righteous, no one acceptable before God, not even one, that the wages of sin is death, that, that we are born separated from God. Remember, we talked about death in the Bible talks about, not about annihilation, but separation and that is an issue of our being born into Adam's family. And I'm just going to show you this right here. So, so in, in, in this view of the, what the Bible tells us that in Adam, we are born into Adam and that in Adam all die, that our lineage is from Adam. We talked about this last week for, for a good bit. And so it's important that we see this more so than our, the number of sins that we commit, we see that we're born into the wrong family, and what we try to do is we want to be a part of basically, you see, God helps those that help themselves, and so, you know, the religions of the world tell us that it's, it's up to us to attempt to reach God, but we can't do it. Every one of us knows we can't do it, and so we just kind of jiggle with the rules a little bit to where they're manageable for, for us. But what we see is the issue is that God has to do something in each and every one of us to take us, as we talked about, ah, you knew I'm going to pull out my cups here, take us out of Adam, we're all born into Adam, and place us into Christ. He needs to give us new life. So when it came to the Bible, because I hadn't read it, I assumed things about the Bible And I just thought stereotypically. I just grew up believing something and not believing something else, or not even knowing what else there was to believe. I never imagined for a moment, had you ever imagined for a moment that the issue that we had with God was not so much all the things that we did wrong, though that was the issue as well, but that we were born into a family because in Adam, I was born into Adam, I was born of Buddy and Carolyn Gloria, and Buddy and Carolyn Gloria hadn't lived then they wouldn't have lived, and i draw my lineage all the way to Adam. And God told Adam, the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And so we inherit death and separation. And that is why we need to be, the Bible says, born into a new family. We need to be born into God's family. We need to be born of God. And so, But we don't know what the Bible says because we never read it. And I asked you guys this back in week one. How many of you grew up reading or studying the Bible? And I got about 10 hands up in the room. And so we really don't have a knowledge of what the Bible says yet. We'll call ourselves Christians. But Christianity is based on the Bible. And if I don't know what the Bible says, can I really, can I really know that I am a Christian, a follower of Christ? Can I know that? But the things that bother, us, uh, bother me about the Bible, maybe bothered you about the Bible, are things that... Because we take so much, or at least I did, I assumed so many things about the Bible. Maybe some of these are the things that you would assume as much as well. You can't understand it. Why read it? You can't understand it. It's just too, it's too hard. I mean, there's so many different interpretations. Who's to know what the right one is? I mean, you've, you've heard these things, haven't you? Um, it, or it's all bad news anyway. So why should I just let the Bible pound on all the more guilt that I already have? I don't, I don't need that. Uh, or my personal favorite, my personal favorite about not reading the Bible, we're not supposed to read it. Now, maybe some of you heard that. You're not supposed to read it. It's, it's left for people that are more educated to read the Bible. Um, really, where did we get that idea? Because it's not to be found in the pages of the Bible at all. Matter of fact, just the, the Bible tells us just the opposite. I'm just going to give you one scripture right here. Here's what Jesus says in the 20th chapter. We have it recorded in the 20th chapter of John. But these things are written. Why are they written? Why do we have the scriptures? And we'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute. Why are they written? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Okay, now let's just say for a moment that is true. Okay, and I do believe it's true. But let's just say it's true, whether you believe it or not. If you can have life, and what he's talking about life now is life. Huh, you're gonna, If you're here the first time, you're definitely have, thinking this man's lost his mind. All right, and maybe you're thinking that anyway. But, okay, so we talk about life and the dash, beginning of life and death. All right, we call that the dash. So he says here that believing you may have life in his name, life now, and life the moment your heart stops forever, life in the line. So if Jesus says, and he, if he is the son of God, that believing him, you have life in his name, would not it be a good idea to find out what is written in the Bible to know what that means? They're written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one that comes to save. He's the one that comes to deliver. He's the one that comes to take us out of Adam. He's the one that comes to give us joy and peace in the midst of the challenges of this world. It's what he says he will do. They're written so that uh, we know what it means to receive the gift. We know what it means to say, I do, to be taken, as I said, out of Adam. So, top of page 34, why read the Bible? Now, let me just ask you a question. I think this is interesting. Don't, don't answer the question, but just to yourself. Um, how many of you would say you've spent more time reading the Bible in the last four Tuesdays than maybe the last four years? Maybe the last four decades? So, so again, even if you leave, you're saying, I don't believe any of this stuff at least you will have had an opportunity to find out what the Bible says and what it doesn't say and what it teaches and what it doesn't teach. These things are so important. The Bible is the written revelation. According to what the scripture says, it's the written revelation of the mind and the heart of God. He wants us to read his story because it includes every one of us. He wants us to know him and he wants us to know us. We see all of his attributes in the scriptures. We saw that in week three. We also see God's righteousness and his righteous anger against all of us who have rebelled against him because of the disobedience that every one of us have exercised that we inherited from our progenitor, Adam. But we also see in the Bible that God came and loved every one of us individually so much that he gave us his son that we could be taken out of death and placed into the family of his son now and forever. And that is great, great news. I mean, this isn't some small payment. If you go to somebody's house, let's say you're over to somebody's house and uh, knock on the door, ring the bell. You answer the door for your friend because he's not home. And, uh, and he's, uh, the mailman's there. The mailman uh, says, hey, you got 38 cents as post as due, or I won't be able to deliver this. And so you pull 50 cents out of your pocket, you tell him to keep the change, and, and off he goes. And your friend comes back, and you, and you tell him, hey, while you were gone, uh, the postman came, and I gave him 32 cents for uh, your mail. And he says, oh, thanks, that was very kind of you. Um, big deal. But let's say your friend is away, and there's a knock at the door. It's a stronger knock at the door. Sounds like somewhat of an angry knock at the door. And... It's someone that's there to evict you because you haven't paid, your friend hasn't paid his mortgage in a year. And they're ready to throw him out of the house. And you go, whoa, 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 how much does he owe? And he owes $50,000. And what do you do? You pull out of your back pocket, you write a check, and say, here, here you go. So your friend comes back home. And he said, hey, I understand you didn't pay your mortgage for the last year. He says, yeah, I just don't, don't have any money. I'm, so well, I just want you to know the bill collector came by and I just gave him $50,000. How would you feel about that, personally? It's one thing to pay a 32 cent stamp. It's another thing to pay a debt that you cannot pay. And the Bible tells, about, uh, tells us about a debt that you and I owe that we are incapable of paying. But that God in his love comes to pay for each and every one of us because we don't have it in us. See, this is why the gospel is called the good news. It's called the good news. So we'll see here at the top of 24, 34, the Bible is a most popular book. Let me just show you here. Top 23 authors of all time have sold, have sold in there. So we have C.S. Lewis and J.K. Rowling and Beatrix Potter and some just really great authors. Well, these are considered the top 23 authors of all time. In 10 years, their book sold three and a half billion copies. Three and a half billion copies. Now, that seems like a pretty big sum until you realize that the Bible so has sold over five billion copies in the 1990s. Right? That doesn't include the number of copies of the Bible that have been given away in the 1990s. That doesn't count the 20. So the Bible is far and away the greatest best seller. Of all time, it is the most popular book ever. It's also powerful. It's powerful in its production, in its purpose, in its present, its preservation. Um, and it had a pretty powerful impact on some men. George Washington says it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Lincoln said this. He says, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man, all the good things from the Savior of the world is communi- to, communicated to us through this book and then Ronald Reagan said, within the covers of the Bible are all the answers for all the problems men face. I appreciate some you know, some some shout outs for the Bible from these men who probably had a lot of pressure on them, you can imagine. Uh, But they look to, they turn to the Bible. The Bible's also pretty amazing in its preservation. Now look, there are so many things we could talk about in terms of the Bible. We're just going to, this is an introduction to the Bible. But we're just going to hit on some of these things here. One is, again, in terms of preservation. And these things are, I think, historically encouraging and intriguing whether or not you are a believer in the authenticity of the Scripture or not. So we talked uh, in week two. We talked about textual criticism. What happened here? I'm going the wrong way. That's what it is. Um, We talked about textual criticism. Remember this: this is the science of textual criticism, criticism whereby an ancient manuscript is determined to be valid, believable, or not. And there's three aspects of of the bibliographical test of textual criticism: the quantity of manuscripts, ancient documents. How many do we have remaining? We don't have any of the originals, more than likely. Um, the quality of the manuscripts, the consistency. Are all the documents saying the same thing or pretty close to the same thing? That would be the quality of the manuscripts. And then the time span. What's the time span between the original autograph and the copies? And so we saw with the New Testament, there are more copies of the New Testament by far than any other work of antiquity. And the, and the time span between the original And the manuscripts is incredibly small. So that's something that you may want to look in yourself. But there's some other things here. Um, Nelson Gluck considered one of the greatest archaeologists in the history of archaeology. He was the president of Hebrew Union College said this. He said, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. They form tesserae, or little tiles, in the vast mosaic of the Bible's almost incredibly correct historic memory. And I could pull out many more archaeological quotes um, which we don't have time to, but there's actually a magazine that's put out. It's been put out since, I believe, the 1970s called Biblical Archaeology Review. It's put out four times a year now, and its whole purpose is to, to reveal and to report on archaeological discoveries that, that are at biblical times and deal with uh, biblical issues and beyond. So, so we see that. So we see through textual criticism... You know, we see through the copies that we have, the manuscripts that we have. We see through uh, archaeology. Uh, We see also through prophecy. There are over 330 prophecies of the Messiah in the Hebrew Scriptures, in what we call the Old Testament. And uh, in a a book called Science Speaks by Peter Stoner, uh, he said... He said that there would be no way for one person to fulfill all of those prophecies. And he went about doing the science, a scientific probability to see that. So, for example, for one person to fulfill uh, just 48 of those 330 plus prophecies attributed to Jesus, it would be 10 to the 157th pow- power. Okay, that's 10 with 156 zeros after it. For just for one person to fulfill 48 of those. Well, let's just take a look at just eight. Let's say one person to fulfill eight of those. The place of birth, type of birth, the time of appearance. That's Jesus' time of appearance. Jesus' Jerusalem entrance, his betrayal, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's stated in all these different books of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, the, uh, the, the probability of one person fulfilling just... Just eight of those is 10 to the 17th power. Okay, that's 10 with 16 zeros after. Now, let me give you an example of this, which is given in Stoner's book. 10 to the 17th power is the state of Texas, two feet deep in silver dollars. That seems crazy. Two feet deep in silver dollars. Now take one of those silver dollars and put a red X on it and throw it into the middle of the state and add a maybe a Texas twister and just spin it all up, blindfold someone, and have them go through the state of Texas and pick a silver dollar. And the chance of that person picking that silver dollar with the X on it is 10 to the 17th power. And so we have some amazing amazing ways of looking at and seeing that the bible is authenticated through so many different ways beyond a shadow of a doubt no beyond a rational doubt possibly but something for you and me to consider because if this if this book or compilation of books we call the bible is god breathed that means A God. God breathed it. God had it written. That means there's some reason that this God desires to communicate with us that he is present and desires for us to know him. There's no other reason for it to be written. And so something for you and me to consider tonight as we talk about why and how should I read the Bible is why is the Bible even there to begin with? unless it was kind of like what Jesus said, these things are written so that you would believe in the Son of God and that believing in Him, you would have life in His name. If all that is true, there is an offer that this God makes to you and me that is unlike any offer you and I will ever have extended to us because no one makes, can make an offer for this life. And beyond, except the God that is beyond this life. You can get lots of promises in the dash. But what about in the dash and even beyond? And so that's, why is this book written to begin with? It's so that we will know that Jesus is the Christ. And I'd love that God doesn't ask any of us to chuck our brains or check, the brain at our, check our brains at the door when we come in. But he does call us through the scripture for humble search. I mean, again, think about this. He is God. If, if this is written by God, he is God. The Bible tells us, it's interesting, the Bible tells us what we need to know, not necessarily all we want to know, right? But, but it does tell us what we need to know in terms of having a relationship with God. It was uh, Mark Twain that said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do. <laughs> See, and, and that's true. Jesus said that we come to him as a little child. He's made it very understandable for us. So God wants us to humbly, thoughtfully search. And that's what the scripture tells us. So a little multiple choice quest, question here for us. So in this 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Mark, a lawyer comes to Jesus. Okay, now, now we're talking about a lawyer, someone well-versed in the law of Moses, knows the, the Hebrew Scriptures. He says, a lawyer asks Jesus a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your... Here's your multiple choice. Sincerity. Enthusiasm consciousness gut feelings or mind you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and I know many of you know the answer to this question and with all your mind Okay, with all that is within you, with all your feelings, with all of your intellect, God says I have given you Who you are and how you think and how you feel. So then humbling yourself before me, you will know me and I will reveal myself to you through my word. And then Jesus said, this is the great and foremost commandment to love God. You know what the greatest commandment of God is? I just told you, love him. Well, how do I love him? He gave us this thing called the Bible so that we could find out who he is and we could find out who we are and that we could understand his love for us and we could come to to the degree in which we can understand him and how he has loved us. So let's just look at some quick Bible facts here why and how should I read the Bible? Well, God has spoken revelation of himself. And as we look at the Bible, there's so many um, historical, more historical facts surrounding the Bible. Just some things. The Bible is comprised of 66 books, 37 in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, 29 in the New Testament, uh, 40 authors from various walks of life, kings and shepherds and fishermen. uh, Across a time span of 1,500 to 1,800 years, the The Old and New Testament are written. Um, It consists of narrative history, war stories, drama, exposition, letters, prophecies, sermons, and wisdom, literature. It's fascinating in its diversity. It's written on three continents. And it is written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. It's written across Europe, Asia, and Africa as well. And so if we just break down the Bible for a moment, just kind of break it down into books. I don't know how well you can see this. We've got a copy of this for all of you tonight. So in the Old Testament, again, this is the scripture that Jesus knew. Okay? He knew the Hebrew scriptures. And we see the law makes up the, the first five books of the Bible. Then we have history, the, just telling the history of Israel. Okay, then we have Job's and Psalms and Proverbs Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon considered poetic books. Then we have the major prophets, which are major just because they're bigger books. not that these are this is the major league. this is the minor league. You don't have to worry about them. Uh, the, the, no, it's, they're just bigger books. Um, and then we get into the Gospels, okay? The, first, the Gospels are the recording of the life of Jesus. Acts is the birth of the church, right? The first church, the birth of the church. Then we have Paul's letters. The numbers of letters that Paul the Apostle wrote to the church. We have other general epistles written by James or Peter or John or Jude. And we have the one prophetic book, the book of Revelation. The book of Hebrews. I love this. Uh, the book of Hebrews. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Uh, but, it, it, but it truly just dives the believers, the Jewish believers, into an understanding that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law of Moses. He is the fulfillment of God's promises. He is the Messiah promised by God to Israel. So, so the Bible reveals in writing what you and I can see externally. We can see in the creation. But we also know internally. There's something inside of us. So we know that there's something bigger than we are. We see on the outside But there's a sensation that we have on the inside saying there must be more than this. So why should I read it? Well, if true, it has all the questions, it has all the answers to all the questions we are to have about life. God comes to give us those answers. But unless I know what it says, we won't know how important it is. And like I told you, and maybe you're in that same camp that I was in. I had no idea. What was in it? I had no idea what it said about God. I had no idea what it said about me. See, the Bible's purpose is to direct us to God. So, um, let's see what he says. So, Paul writes to Timothy, a new new pastor in Ephesus. He says this to Timothy: All Scripture is inspired by God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, so we see here, Scripture's written so that we know that Jesus is the Christ, and believing in Him, we'd have life in His name. The Scripture is written so that you and I can profit. Now, this is not American profit we're talking about. Not that it's not, but this is about profiting in our souls and in our spirits. And the scripture will teach us and reprove us and correct us and train us in righteousness. Now, remember, I told you that we were in Adam. If we, if we haven't have yet to surrender our lives to Christ, we're still separated from God in Adam. But when God, when God gives us his life, he takes us out of Adam and gives us new life in Christ and he trains us. In him who is righteous. He trains us in himself, the righteous one. And I love this because this teaching and this reproving and this correction and this training is all in love. Everything that God does in terms of revealing himself to us is in love. Yes, love motivated. It teaches me that Jesus bore the anger and wrath that God had for me. There's no greater news than that. And so we see here that the Bible is basically our instruction manual for life. I mean, you and I can't put a bike together, much less put life together on our own, right? And I I don't know if you've ever had this experience, Um, but let's just say it's Christmas, you've got kids, right? It's late, Christmas Eve, and this bike still needs to be put together. But of course, you know how to put a bike together, right? You're an American. Of course you can put a bike together. Uh, And so you, uh, you take it out and you start putting all the bike together. And pretty soon it's looking pretty good. And you just about got it all done. There it is. And then on the floor, you notice this one piece. It just doesn't seem like it fits at all. And then what do you do? Yeah, you read the instructions after you've put the bike together. Uh, and and this is what it says. You see the spot, you see that little piece that was that's still on the floor there. And the piece in the in the instruction manual it says important. <laughs> this must be placed here in the early construction phase of the bicycle. So with that you 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 put down the instruction manual, you quietly walk out of the house, and you say, curse you, Mr. Schwinn, I hate you. Now, you're blaming Mr. Schwinn, Schwinn's a brand of bicycle for those of you who didn't know that, um, You're blaming Mr. Schwinn when he told you the way your bike fits together. But you, of course, you, Frank, you knew how to do it. Um, But we kind of do that with God. He's given us this, this thing called the Bible. He's made sure it was assembled and made its way to us from thousands of years ago. As our instruction manual. So when I say, curse you, God, why'd you let that happen to me? Well, I actually tell you about that, Frank, in here, so that you'll understand, I am aware, I told you that in this world, you would have tribulation. In this world, you would have missing bicycle parts in your life, and you need to know that. You need to pay attention, and the issue is just that. The issue is need. It really is need. See, if I don't have a need for something, if I'm not hungry, I'm not going to go to the refrigerator. I don't have a need. If I have gas, feel like I have gas in my car, whether I do or not, I'm not going to go to the gas station because I feel like I've got got gas in my car, whether I do or not. So these things, need is the issue. Need is always the issue. And it's what the Bible tells us we have. Whether we sense we have a need or not, the Bible says you and I have a need that nothing in this world, nothing in the dash of life will f- fulfill. It just won't. No matter how successful you may be, no matter how much money you may have in your bank account, if you're in the stock market, you, whew, it, I don't know what it did today, but it was bad. So things are just not going the way we want them to, but... There's no assurance on this side. But unless I know that there's a need greater than I, I am not going to seek beyond myself. Now, last week, you may remember that I took you to Niagara Falls. Remember that? We had a great time. Wasn't it awesome? Um, And we talked about Blondin. You remember Blondin, the great Blondin? He took a tightrope, stretched it across the falls, and... He took his manager and he put him in a wheelbarrow and he took him from one side of the falls to the other. And and we talked about that and said, what if Blondin, let's say we're a gathered audience of people here at Blondin, at Niagara Falls. And he came to you and said, I can take a person, put him in a wheelbarrow and take him from one side of Niagara Falls to the next. Would you get in? So. You can say, yeah, I believe you can, but until you get in, you really don't. But why would you? Because you know the moment one of you says you're going to get in, you know what's going to happen, don't you? Everybody's going to pull out their phones. And everybody's going to hope to God that you both go in so they can make a lot of money and you're going to be the first one to get it to the New York Times or wherever you're going to get it to because I'm not getting in. Why Would you get in? Would you do that? Just I mean, some of you folks maybe are daredevils, but I'm not going to do that. And so we talked about that saying that... You know, you're here when you think about what the Bible, you know, when, when Blonda says you can take a person from one side to the other, the claim of Jesus is that he can take a person from this side to the next. The question is, do we believe that? So you could be here curious, and I said, thank you for being here curious. Or you can be here convinced. You may have grown up in a church your whole life, but you've never heard anything like this because maybe you never heard what the Bible has to say. Or maybe committed. In other words, you've gotten in the wheelbarrow and you're committing your life not to your ability to get you to the other side, but you're committing yourself and your life to Jesus' claim that he can get you to the other side or Blondin's ability to get you to the other side. Now, so here we are. We're all here. We're at Niagara Falls, okay? And I am talking to you. the The falls, the rapids are on the other side of me. Now... When you came in, there's only one way to get in and one way to get out. It's the same way. But it's a tremendous amount of foliage between the exit and the entrance and the falls. Well, all of a sudden, I look and the entire entrance and exit to the falls is on fire. And it is blazing. You're feeling the heat on your back right now. Do you feel it? You don't feel it yet? Okay. So so question is, what are you going to do? Okay. There is no way to get out. Now, you can try to run through the fire and you're going to die. Or you could try to tightrope your way across telling me to get out of the way as you get yourself across. Or you can just try to dive in and see if you can survive, which no one has. Or you could hear Blondin say, I can take a person, put them in a wheelbarrow, and take them from one side of the falls to the next. You see, until you and I recognize that we have a need that is bigger than ourselves, until you and I see that no matter how good we think we've been, We don't know for sure. And if what the Bible says is true, my goodness will never commend me to God. It never will. Only the goodness of Jesus Christ, according to the scripture, commends you and me to God and gives us that relationship with him where we're taken out of death and placed into life. The question is, have I seen a need in my life that is so great that I know nothing that I have done, or ever could do, could commend me, could get me from one side of Niagara to the next, or could get me out of this life and assure me eternal life for forever. And so, did I, so when I saw my need, that's when I started paying attention. When I saw, you know what, life has not I've had lots of things, lots of successes. I've experienced a lot of joys in life, but they just don't seem to last. Is there something more? And the promise of the Scripture, why to read the Bible, is that God has promised something so much more in His Son, in that relationship He offers us with Him. But a couple of problematic issues with that. See, When I get in the wheelbarrow, so to speak, when I accept Jesus' offer and I trust him to get me from from earth to heaven, if you will, I cease insisting and desiring that God accept me based upon my performance. That's meology. Now think about this because some of us may have never thought about this. I cease insisting and desiring that God accept me based on me. What I do, what I don't do, say and don't say. I no longer accept God based on his performance from my perspective. That's myology too. I start believing he loves me and accepts me because of his performance, not mine. That's biblical Christianity. Now I, earlier on in life, these, this exactly would have been where I came from. I insisted God accept me based on my performance. And I, and I accepted God based on his performance, from my perspective. I had no idea what the Bible said. That he loves me and accepts me because of his performance, not mine. And the problem with that is relinquishing control of my life, or not. Relinquishing it or not to the one who says he loves me and died to prove it. And I start believing and accepting that God loves me based on what he has done. And so God's love letter, if you will, is to reveal the truth about his character and thereby draw us to him. Paul wrote to Timothy as well this. He says, "...that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom..." That leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, if that is the truth, what God is saying is, in the pages of this book, God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ so that you and I will know him. That you and I will know him beyond the issues of rules and regulations. The Bible is to draw you and me into a two-way relationship with God. Between him and me. So, so when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He really means that. Come to me. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I'm gentle and humble at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does that sound like a pretty good deal? Any, anybody weary? Burdened in your soul. I'm not talking about physically, but weary, burdened in your soul. He says, learn of me. How am I going to learn of him? These things are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. Gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus doesn't say this. Come to me if you're weary and burdened, and I'll give you more to do. He doesn't say that. Come to me if you're a weary bird. I'll give you more rules to keep. More obligations. More things for you to be tested to see if you really love me or not, you hypocrite. That's not what it says. He says, come to me and I will give you what nothing on this planet can give you. Rest in your souls. In your, in your whole mind. Your whole being. He offers that to us. Nobody wants a relationship uh, where it's just more and more rules, more and more demands. Make sure you're here. Make sure you don't go there. Make sure you say this. Make sure you don't drink that, for heaven's sake. Make sure you do drink this. Make sure all of these things that you're doing, make sure the list is there. That doesn't give me rest. That just adds to my burdens. Jesus said he came to do for you and me all that we could not do for ourselves. That's what the Bible reveals. Jesus said, I didn't didn't come to to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Why? Because you, Frank Gloria, cannot. I came because I love you so much to do for you what you could not do for yourself. And he reveals that to us historically through his word. You see, Jesus said this. He says, the thief comes, and you'll hear he's talking about Satan. We're going to talk about evil in just a couple of weeks, week seven. The thief comes only... To steal, kill, and destroy. He comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. To kill, kill and steal and destroy what? Come to me if you are weary and heavy burdened. He comes to destroy our rest, our sense of God, our desire to even know God. He says, but I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus' promise is that I come to give you life now in the hectic paces of this world and I come to give you life forever on the other side of your last heartbeat. That's what he has promised to offer. And as we talked about in week two and week three, his resurrection affirms that to us. So the Bible says that we are made in the image of God relational. Now let let me just prove this to you. God says the greatest part of his being, if I can put it that way, is that he is relational. He is relational. And we are made in the image of God. Let me just show you this. Let's just go to a funeral home right now. okay? Um, You're at a funeral and you're standing over a casket. And as you walk up to the casket, there is the lifeless body of the person that is closer to you than anyone has ever been. That person you loved with your life. You there? What would you not give to have them back? give everything so what does that prove in the deepest sense and essence of our being we long for relationship above anything else if you look at the scripture it tells us this that God stood over our, your my lifeless being. And he gave his son to get us back. Because God loved us so much. He gave his son so that our lifeless, separated from him beings could have life. God loves us and he died in his son jesus christ died to prove it he directs us to himself through his word Uh, so paul writes this he says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of christ okay so we keep seeing these things that God says, I'm drawing you into my word so that you will know me. Uh, my wife and I, Annette and I, used to write letters back and forth to one another. Um, she has embarrassed me at times by reading them publicly. Um, and, uh, but I hung on to every one of those letters. I think my mom threw them away, to be honest with you. But, um, but she's got all those letters but you know what happened? Because she was in—I ba- was in Baton Rouge. She was in New Orleans. And what those letters did were drew us all the more tightly together. Again, this predates email or anything else. This is where you had to take the letter, bring it to the mailbox, put a stamp on it. You had to actually write with a pen or a pencil, um, and. And as I read them and collected them, I read them and read them and read them and read them and read them them over and over again. And those letters made me long to be with her more and more. There's a day coming, the Bible says, when God will come and get us And this letter will be replaced by the letter, the word of God. See, when Ned and I were finally married and together, those letters just kind of just weren't important anymore because we were with one another. But how those letters cause us to hunger more and more for one another In a way, it's what God's letter does to bring us to deeper and deeper hunger for him until we're with him. And So he desires for us to know that. So in in your manual, I think it's on page um, 35. If you want to turn there real quick, if you got it out, page 35, I'm just about done. Rick Warren, who's a pastor out in California, uh, wrote the book Purpose Driven Life. He says, Reading the Bible generates life. It produces change. It heals hurts. It builds character. It transforms circumstances. It imparts joy. It overcomes adversity. It defeats temptation. It infuses hope. It releases power. It cleanses the mind. And I think that's, I've experienced all of those. But I would maybe articulate this a little bit differently with all due respect to a man much more intelligent than I. Reading the Bible generates the life of Jesus in us. And Jesus produces change. And Jesus heals hurts. And Jesus builds and changes our character. And Jesus transforms our circumstances. Jesus imparts joy, overcomes adversity, defeats temptation. Jesus infuses hope. Jesus releases his power and cleanses the mind. This compilation of books is for the purpose of revealing God to us. Now, What I did not go over is, okay, now, how do I read it? And that's something we're going to go and look at tonight at our tables. What should I do? How do I read the Bible? I had no idea. Well, hopefully tonight, by the end of this evening, we'll have some better ideas of how to do that. And so, next week, we'll be in session five. How and why do I pray? There's been fascinating things about prayer that we need to know about. So sure hope to see you guys again next week. Let's take a quick break and let's get back to our tables and find out about how to read the Bible.